You know, I think back to my favorite professor in college, and uh, he was the one the other professors hated, but I realized he was he was a genius. Uh, he's a computer science professor, and he would never answer any of our questions. Like we'd be like, "Hey, how do you do this? Like, how do I show the contents of a directory on a computer?" And he'd be like, "I don't know. Have you looked at the manual?" Like everything was, "I don't know. Have you looked at the manual?" But the advice that he was teaching us was that you know you first have to develop a, the ability to be self-reliant and go try to solve stuff without being dependent on somebody else, and that's the way to get ahead. And so he didn't exactly ever say it, but he beat it into us that that sort of life approach and that that first principles idea there is core to being a successful human being. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have Michael Girdley with me today from San Antonio, Texas. Michael's the chairman and co-founder of Dura Software, and he owns several businesses like Alamo Fireworks, Toro Coffee. He owns a venture fund called Geekdom. He owns a coding academy called CodeUp. And today we talk a lot about what he called the three phases of his career and where he's at now in his third phase. We talk about how he learned that he's really good at getting things started, but is really also focused on when to get out of a business and let other people run it. We talk about his family business, the firework business, and how he left Silicon Valley to come run it, and how he operates it today as an owner with another CEO in place. We talk about CodeUp and what they're doing with Dura Software. We talk a lot about business structure. We talk about what Silicon Valley looked like in the late 90s during the dot-com bust. We hear a little bit about what's going on in San Antonio and how quickly it's growing. And then one of our mutual connections, Culture Index, how we help identify and create great teams through Culture Index. So this episode was a lot of fun. Enjoy. Michael, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you joining me today. Let's just start off with a little bit about who Michael is and kind of your story growing up and what led you to what you're doing today. Yeah, well, great. Yeah, I'm really in the third phase of my career. The first phase was growing up here in San Antonio, be, always being a computer kid. Left San Antonio like many other people in the, in the early 90s. I wanted to go to the, see the big world. I went to school back east, got a computer science degree got really heavy into tech. Like that was where I wanted to be. And, you know, after graduation there, moved out to the Bay Area. And that was really phase one. I worked for other people at that point and spent six, seven years rising up the ranks at different tech companies, worked in cryptography, enterprise software, all this different kind of stuff. Got exposed to that. And then around that time, met the woman who had become my current wife and uh, an only wife, hopefully that's the plan. And she and I decided we wanted to move out of the Bay Area. And at the time, my father wanted to retire from running our family business. So he offered me the opportunity to come in and learn that. And that started the second phase of my career, which was being CEO of a retail and wholesale fireworks company here in Texas. And I did that for about a decade and then realized that I wanted to live in a more creative space professionally. And that leads me to the stuff I do now, which is... You know, first phase was working for other people. Second phase was working for myself. And now I work on businesses and try to avoid working in them if I can. 
What is cryptography? Cryptography is the basic science and methodologies around how you send codes, coded information and protect it. So like every time you go visit a website, there are technologies underneath that that are based on cryptography that allow you know codes and all that kind of stuff for your credit card information and whatever to pass safely and securely to another site or for two people's iMessages not to get seen by people in transit. So old school, it's a fancy word for codes. Yeah. I like it. It's a fancy word. You grew up, you know, now if, if in the generation we're living in now and somebody's a computer kid, it's really probably more normal than not. But I would imagine when you were growing up, being a computer kid was probably less the norm. How did you get into computers? Was there something that, you know, made you fascinated in them or was it your dad or family or how'd you get into it? Yeah. Well, I think as a young person, I definitely was a precocious kid. Some of that was because I didn't go to classical kindergarten and pre-K. So I spent a lot of time with adults when I was very young. So for me, you know, being that kind of kid and living in the suburbs, computers just made sense much more than people did. Like they just always felt easy. They were very logical. You know, I can remember as being a young kid, I was really enamored with Spock, you know, from Star Trek's view on life, like, you know, rationality, logic, like that's awesome. And Bones, you know, the doctor, he looked like a crazy person. I was like, who can live like that? You know, that doesn't sound like fun at all. So, you know, my parents were entrepreneurs and and doing well. And I remember they bought me an Apple IIe computer when I was eight years old. It's 1983. And uh, yeah, then I spent a lot of time on that and then was fortunate enough to go to a privileged high school here in San Antonio that had years of computer science beyond what even many of the universities had in their program. So I took four years of programming and passed out of the first two years of college computer science just because what I was able to do in, in high school. So I liked them. They were much more fun than people at the time. That's awesome. I love it. What year did you go out to the Bay Area? So let's see. So I graduated from college in 97. There was a nine-month kind of boring stop in the middle skiing for an entire season in Colorado, which was great. And so I would have been there, you know, just early 98. So you kind of got there before the big kind of dot-com bust. What was Silicon Valley, San Francisco like? One, just arriving there in 98. I mean, I think it's a lot more talked about today than maybe it was back then. But what was it like when you got there? And what was it like going through that period of massive bust? It was crazy. You know, I told a story on Twitter the other day about right at the peak, the company I was working for called BEA Systems, which is now part of Oracle, they ran a referral program because recruiting was so tough. They ran a referral program that was basically close to $20,000 per referral in today's dollars. At the time, it's $12,000 and in, in $99,000, $2,000. So like things were nuts. It was just the beginning of kind of those you know perfect storms that come every once in a while in the tech industry. And yeah, I can remember the pets.com parties and not getting invited to that and realizing, okay, I'm not as cool as I think I am and all that kind of stuff happening. But the other thing that was really different is back then, most of us, if we wanted to live in San Francisco and you wanted a tech job, you had to basically drive down to San Mateo, Redwood City or whatever. So one of the jobs I had had me commuting three hours a day round trip from San Francisco to San Jose. That's also, it turns out, really unhealthy to do that. But so at that time, San Francisco really wasn't as much of a center of gravity for tech as it is now. Like Soma is a totally different place. 
you know, I lived there and it was rough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still rough, but like, it was really rough. I saw some stuff that, you know, as a kid from suburban San Antonio, I was like, oh boy, like that's, that is not what I expected to see this week. Yep. So like when the crash happened, was it, did people see it coming or was it like the lights were on and all of a sudden the lights were off and it happened that quick? I think some people saw it coming. You know, in retrospect, I felt like I had a lot of privilege because I was that 26, 27-year-old kid who had been promoted really beyond his years. I got promoted several times and was a director level at a big corporation. And I was managing people that were like 45 years old yeah. who were making more money than me. Yeah. It, was, it was super weird. Yep. <laughs> so I can only imagine how they feel, felt being a 46-year-old guy now where this kid's like sitting there talking to you. But I got to go to meetings that were pretty fun. And I remember going into one of the meetings and one of the other senior executives who was a C-level person, you know, he just comes in and casually announces while we're getting ready to have a meeting, you know, oh, like I sold all my stock today. Because our stock at the time had gone from... $4 a share when I first started to like 132 or something, split unadjusted. And uh, he's like, yep, I sold everything. And uh, it turned out he was pretty smart because the top was like four weeks away. So I think it, I think it was just like most things, you know, people, some people see it and the majority don't. I know there were stories of developers that I worked with. One of them exercised all of his shares and then the stock crashed, you know, went from back from 130 to 12 or whatever. Well, there's this thing called AMT, alternative minimum tax. So he had to sell his house in order to pay all this income tax on money he never collected. Oh my God. It was, it was rough. So, so the C levels got it. Some of the junior folks, not so much, not so much. And I'm assuming I know the answer, but on the ride from four to 132, was the business growing? Was revenue growing? Was there income? Or was it purely just like everything else? Everything was just running because of the promise of what tech would be? Or did was there fundamentals in the business that helped drive the stock there? Yeah, the product I worked on, I was product manager for it, which for my personality type is a, a great type of role, right? Product managers go talk to a bunch of people and then they develop insights and then they go try to sell those insights to other other folks. So I assume we'll talk about culture index. Like that is a perfect role for my culture index. And so based on that, that I was the product manager for that. And so we had a real enterprise product. Like we were basically selling the stuff that was middleware that would enable websites, which until then were pretty static to be highly scalable and dynamic and customized and personalized. All the stuff we take for granted now, but like being able to log into a website back then and have personalized content for you, like that was cutting edge technology. So we were selling all of that. You know, when I first started working on that that product, we were doing, we were part of a startup that had been bought by BEA. We were doing three or four million a quarter. By the time I left, that had turned into a 75, $80 million run rate. So, you know, we were seeing massive growth and it's still a pretty viable business. I mean, Oracle is still selling that product and I'm, I assume ridiculously high maintenance contracts and all that kind of stuff. And I think they're on, when I left, we were on version five, I think they're on version 17 or something now. That's crazy. And, and were most of those businesses venture funded before they went public or was everybody having to go public because there wasn't a lot of venture capital to handle, handle all these tech businesses that were coming out of the ground? Uh, I mean, it feels a lot like today, like just the natural market pressures were causing supply to be created. I mean, people were just hungry for the vision of the internet at the time and would throw money at pets.com or Amazon and 
all this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know if I'm I'm ducking your question or not, but it was just a it was just a mania. Just like right now feels like a mania. Yep. And then you leave San Francisco and go do something that's not as tech. You go run your family business, which was a a firework business, which in Texas is a a big, big deal. Talk to me just about maybe the culture shock or the maybe difference of being in high-flying, fast-moving Silicon Valley and then moving to Texas to run a firework business. What what was, yeah. how big was the business? What'd you do with it? Tell me the whole thing. Yeah, well, um, business was about 20 full-time people when I joined, a little shy of 100 locations. So, you know, for those of you listening, in Texas, we have only two types of ways you can sell backyard fireworks. So there's different types of fireworks and the kind we are the are the ones that you do yourself. So sparklers, Roman candles, little firecrackers, cakes that shoot stuff up in the air, stuff that consumers can do. So yeah, that was about the size when I joined. We were in an office that we had been in for geez, 25 years or so on the east side of San Antonio in a building that had been built, I think, in the 60s and looked every part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was definitely one of those kind of ones where you go in. And, you know, at the time, there was no computerization of anything to speak of. Well, there were some. Like, we ran the whole business off of a TRS-80. I don't know if you're familiar with that type of computer is, but it was even old at, at, in 1999. It was a green screen, all-in-one computer that Radio Shack sold. <laughs> so not only, not only is this computer type not even like sold anymore. Like, and at the time, like Radio Shack was getting ready to go out of business. Like the company that sold it was going out of business. So we didn't even have internet, email, you know, nothing. Like it was all phones and faxes when when I showed up. And it was definitely a culture shock. Like I came from, you know, an email driven, high tech environment to one, you know, which is selling explosives on the side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really different. <laughs> so your dad called you and basically just said, I'm, you know, I, I want to retire and I'd love it if you'd run the business. And was that kind of how that all came to be? Yeah, ex- exactly right. Yeah. So got into entrepreneurship the old fashioned way. Like my family talked me into it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's what I'm born. It's what I'm born to do. So yeah. So my dad, my dad has a very, very successful style, but it is the opposite of me. So he is, well, we'll get into culture next, but he's basically a half architect, half trailblazer. So he's just really, really cool, wants to win type person, very competitive and also detail oriented. Like it's just, it's super cool. Whereas, you know, my personality is I'm somewhat competitive, but I'm also not detail oriented in the least, right? I'm I'm, I'm totally the opposite. So, you know, that created a, a very interesting cultural kind of conflict and dads and sons in business transitions often have those. And, you know, kudos to my dad. It's all on him that it worked, right? In terms of us, maintaining family harmony and all that stuff that we've managed to do, you know, through that, through that process. And he's, he's retired and super happy right now. Like, so I'm so happy for him. So did you work with him when you first, was there a transition where y'all worked together? How long did y'all work together? I guess when you started? Well, we still work together now, you know, he's a huge supporter of ours and he owns a number of the locations that we operate out of. So we're, we're very grateful to him, but yeah, he was day to day in the business for a couple of years. And at that point, you know, he had been wanting to kind of slow down a bit. And then over time, it took about three, three to four years before he finally stepped off. And, you know, we've taken over the business from him. So he doesn't have any equity in it anymore. And he's fully retired. So it took about that period of time. Do you still own the business? Yep. Yep. So, you know, as part of this transition to the third phase of my career, I realized that, you know, to be in a creative space, I was going to have to find the right people to 
operate and run things, especially, you know, where I'm not strong. And so we have professional CEO and professional team that run the business at this point. Did you already have most of that team in place when you were leaving or was that kind of your last, you know, hurrah on the job was putting that whole team in place so that you could kind of parachute out? Well, our first step, the first CEO was actually my brother, who's the other co-owner of the business. And then he he's not that fired up to be the CEO. So then there was another, that, so there was an intermediate step in there. And the new CEO has assembled a team that really works for him. So he has brought a level of detail orientation and excellence to the business that I think is beyond <laughs> beyond the girdly level. Let me put it that way. So the team has turned over quite a bit and that really fits kind of the leadership and the mode of operation that we have right now. How long did it take you to find that CEO and how many people did you talk to before landing on him? And, and did you hire a headhunter or how did that came, come to be? No, I did it all myself. So I'm very big on not recreating the wheel when I don't have to. So so I, I'm a huge top grading person. I think we've talked about that before online. So I use that plus the culture index tool, which is a personality assessment tool. I use those like crazy in hiring processes. Top grading, which is awesome. There's, you know, you don't have to pay anything for it. You can get a book, the book on it on Amazon for I think 11 bucks. Book's terrible. System's great. But it's a very expensive process to run because it changes everything in terms of how you think about hiring and what you have to invest to find really good people. But if you're committed to find really good people, it's an amazing system. So so I ran that. We actually went through two batches of candidates. It took me about five months to find, to find the right person. And I don't want to ask something too personal, but there's, you know, we're now living in a world where the, the baby boomer generation is going to start retiring. There's going to be thousands and thousands of small businesses change hands. And I'm always just fascinated by you know, you and your brother own the business. How do you set up a compensation incentive system for people to be motivated, even if they're not the owners? Like, how have you set it up there? And we don't have to get into the exact numbers, but is there a methodology you follow? For sure. Well, the, the first realization I've had in life around this stuff is that where I think, you know, you and I are both entrepreneurs and a bit more coin operated than other people. That's not the way other people operate. And I know that's, <laughs> and then maybe that's obvious to people, but it's just like, oh, like not everybody's coin operated, but still people want to be paid fairly. You know, and I think secondarily, Graham Weston, who's a huge proponent of San Antonio and one of the founders of Rackspace, he has, he basically has a saying, and, and I might butcher this and paraphrasing it, but he's like, people want to be a valued member of a winning team on an inspiring mission. Right. And so, you know, I think what I'm trying to get to as a point is that, Money is important and people want to be paid fairly, but retention is really about how you go above and beyond money to create an environment where somebody feels if they want to be part of the family or if somebody wants to feel like they're changing the world, how do you create an opportunity for them? And then that all ties back to how do you get the right person as well? So to answer your question, like, yeah, the money's important, but it's maybe half of it or 40% of it. The rest of it is how do you craft the right scenario for them and the respect for them and the care for them and the appreciation for them as a person to really make them want to stay there long term, right? And feel inspired by it. And as the owner, are you, I'm assuming that you've given all delegation to the CEO to run his business. How does he communicate with you or how often are you involved? Is it like a board meeting or are you totally out of the picture now? Yeah, day to day, the company's better off without me all up in their business. So we've crafted a, you know, a designed interaction model 
and split of responsibility. So we also run EOS, which I think you and I have talked about also on Twitter, and we're hardcore about it. So there's an accountability chart and I'm on it, right? And it shows what I'm accountable for. And EOS is a huge part of why I feel like I can do what I do. So there's an interaction model. There's a cadence of meetings. There is a level of detail that I get and level of detail that I don't get. And then the hardest part really is for me, especially having spent time running the business, not to get in there and CEO, right? Like I have to, it's the biggest challenge is not any of that other stuff. It's like, if you're going to be a semi-active owner who cares about the business, how are you going to do your part, right? And not step into your old job and start bossing people around, making decisions. And that's, that is a continual challenge. That is always very hard, but that's the biggest, the biggest challenge. If you don't mind me asking, just as a semi-active owner, is there something that you would mind sharing? Like, what are you accountable for then if you're not working on the day-to-day? What type of accountability do you hold? Yeah, so I get called in for big problems, then typical board stuff in terms of that. So if something needs to get elevated to be a hard thing, like we have a IDS that we're doing this afternoon, that's an EOS term for how you solve problems. Like we're doing that around a, a pretty challenging issue that the company has. So, so I'll get called in for that stuff. And then with everything, the, you know, if you're going to be a, a semi passive owner, like having been stolen from before in my career, like you got to watch the nickels and watch the way, watch where the money's going. That's what I do with all the businesses. And I hate accounting, but I end up every month going through, looking at all the bank statements, looking at where the money's going, understanding who the, who the things, you know, where the cash is going. Like you got to watch that stuff if, if you're not going to be in there day to day. For sure. All right. I won't keep asking on the the firework business. My last question on it, though, and I, I listened to this in a podcast the other day that I think Andrew Wilkinson was on. But do you have some type of control from the standpoint of like if something costs more than X or you're signing a contract with a vendor for more than X that has to be approved? Like, do you have a, a threshold that anything over that you need to be told about? We have not put a fixed threshold in there. We just have an understanding with the CEO for that business that we talk about it. For another business, the limit's 25 grand. Yep. And so we just kind of design that every time. You know, this particular business deals with pretty big numbers sometimes. So we just end up talking about them at the, you know, at the cadence of stuff that we have. It's probably a good idea. We should probably do that. But right now we're not spending money on anything that, you know, I feel like is, I want to take back the money, right? It all feels like we're, we haven't had that problem yet. So we haven't made a rule for it. And one last question. I've just never talked about the firework business. Can you sell year round or do you just expect a major spike around 4th of July and maybe like Memorial Day or something? Or are you do you have a business that's year round or is it just very lumpy? It's incredibly lumpy. Yeah. Most of the sales happen four days out of the year. When I started to work in other businesses where people pay you sometimes before you deliver the service or right after, like it felt like business on easy mode. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> in the fireworks business, like literally you sell a whole bunch of stuff uh, on the 4th of July and then you sit around and you wait for six months and try to fix all the mistakes you just made. What are the big dates? Just 4th of July? What are the dates? So we can sell for 12 days before each holiday, basically. So you get two weeks twice a year, but nobody sells anything till the last few days. It's all, you know... It's all preliminaries. You're just getting ready. So you kind of sit around for 360 days a year, like hoping to God that those four or five days are going to be awesome. Is, is there like a leading indicators or data that y'all follow that gives you, you know, some type of comfort that this is going to be a good year? There's some things that you can predict around, you know, is the weather okay? 
New Year's Eve is our other big holiday. New Year's Eve, the weather can affect stuff. If it snows on New Year's Eve in San Antonio, that kind of sucks because people don't want to go outside. You know, what's happening with COVID or anything like that, that can affect stuff. Days of the week are important. All that stuff kind of matters. But it's hard, right? Like the business is fundamentally hard because in normal business, at worst, you have quarter by quarter feedback cycles or maybe even week by week or month by month. This is almost year by year that you have to wait 13 months to put in place anything that you've learned because July is different as a season from New Year's. Different merchandise mix, different people buying, different everything. So like, there's a reason why young people aren't getting into this business. It is really hard. <laughs> it's yeah. a hard business to do. This is fascinating. I've, I've, I've never talked about that. I mean, like, what do people do the other 11 months of the year? Is it, do you staff up around 4th of July and then it's a lean staff throughout the year? Like, what do you do for the other 350 days? So the rest of the year has become just as busy as the in-season part, right? But so we're doing stuff like merchandising, pricing, strategy, taking vacations, doing audits, financial planning, team building, building systems, dealing with all the stuff that you have to do to be ready so it's not a hair on fire situation for the season. And that business has become, I think, very much more professionally run in that way over the past few years, right? We treat the off-season just as seriously as we treat the on-season. And that's really a cultural shift that we've made that I think is really, really good. We needed to do it. I love it. All right, so that was the second phase of your career. And then you moved into the third phase of your career. And when we first met on Twitter, you... I said, what do you do? And you said, I'm a one-man venture studio. And <laughs> now I am to something, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, I started some other companies in the middle there. I was CEO of two at one time. So we started a coding school called CodeUp that's doing really well as well. So is that in San Antonio or is that all over? We're in Dallas and then Houston. And then we're close to announcing a fourth city pretty soon here. So yeah, so board, board role with that. And there's a professional CEO in place. He's doing a great job. Yeah, started that, started a venture fund also, still involved with that on a day-to-day basis as well. But yeah, I mean, so it's, I don't know, I got away a little bit from the venture studio stuff because it sounds so hokey, but I couldn't describe a better way of, of what I do. Like, I think I'm really good working on businesses from inception to about the time they buy a CRM. Right? There's that phase where it's like, okay, like we can track all of our customers on a spreadsheet. Like, I'm really good in that kind of indeterminate space and and having the intuition and kind of energy to to push through and creatively figure that stuff out. And then I think the thing I've learned is that operationally, there are people that are going to be better at it than I am. And that's where I've gotten and made a lot of focus on how do I envision stuff, get it off the ground, put some skin in the game, and then partner with the right people to take and run with those things. So partnering is like a core of what I do. Like on everything, I have other people with skin in the game on all the stuff that I do. So if my tombstone will say plays plays well, plays nice with others, like so that's true. Like that's what that's one of the things that I try to leverage when I do this stuff. So so now I spend a lot of time supporting the companies that I've started or built, and then being there at the earliest stages to try to build these little things that will hopefully come into turn into big things someday. Is every business different or is there a typical time length when, to the way you put it, when you start needing a CRM? Is that usually in like a year, a couple months, two years? Depends. It's usually 12 to 24 months. I mean, the evolution I'm making now, I think you've seen, I talk about it on Twitter, you know, the experiment we're doing and the venture we're starting is a, a drive through coffee kiosk chain. And, you know, this is the first one that I've started 
with partners or I won't ever work in the business from day one. Everything else, I've taken a role in the business, either been full-time or part-time to like work in it, to build it. And this is one where I wanted to learn how do I scale that because scale myself because I can only hire myself once. Like how do I start businesses that are compounders without me having to take the thing that I have one bullet to shoot, right? Which is I can only hire myself once. So that's an experiment that we're doing there. And I'm, I'm learning a lot about that process. So let's just dive in on that just a little bit. Did you have the idea for this or did somebody bring you the idea? Uh, it's my idea. Okay, so you have the idea. I want to start a kiosk chain of coffee company or coffee companies. Do you like you have that idea and then your next step is I'm just going to go find the right people to actually build it? Yeah, so in this case, exactly. Like I had enough data by kind of seeing it. Like I like being a business nerd. So I'm always out like on vacation. I'll be like, hey, look at that t-shirt business. Those guys look like they're killing it or reading about. That's why I like Twitter. Like I love reading about crazy niches of things that people have learned. So, you know, going out on vacation and driving around, like I would see these kiosks that are all really kind of overbuilt in the West Coast, but they're moving towards flyover America now. So some of the big chains are like Dutch Brothers, Human Bean, all those folks, but they've never really come to Texas. There's a handful of mom and pops, but they're not not serious here yet. So I, you know, I saw that and had read about it. And then, you know, I was in Bentonville last year and I saw a chain there that was just like killing it. Like I, I spent like two hours watching their store and it was like, man, is anybody not going to stop here and buy coffee today? And I knew that coffee was a good thing. So yeah, so just having a prepared mind was really how... You know, I was like, man, I just can't let this idea go. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it's just like it, it just it just kept gnawing at me. And that's that's usually what it takes for me to eventually work on something. I have ideas all the time, but like it just takes like two months of me just being like, Okay, I'm just doing it. You know, it's like Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like it'll keep calling me, keeps calling me. Like that <laughs> that's the experience I have. Okay. So so you you're convicted, like you're gonna move forward and then did you already have some people in mind or do you have to, again, go through using culture index and things to find the people that you're going to build this with? Yeah, well, I think at our, at our age, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm 45, like I think you start to build a mental Rolodex of people that you're like, I want to work with that person someday. And there was a person who used to be in my Vistage peer group. So I'm in a CEO peer group that I go to every month and it's basically CEO therapy. We talk about our feelings and stuff. Yeah. So I uh, highly recommend that. I'm, I'm being diminutive about it, but it's actually, it's really good. It's been transformative for me. So he left because his company didn't want him to do it anymore and wouldn't pay for it. So that's fine. But I always kept him in mind that I wanted to work with him. Like I really like him. He's a big hook D persuader, not to go full CI on you, but he's like a persuader that gets stuff done. He's like, great. So well, these are culture index terms. I, I'm bringing this up because you're a CI guy too. So anyway, so I always knew it. And he also has a big background in construction and entrepreneurship in his past. So yeah, I just, I called him up and I said, hey, we should do this. What do you think? And that was basically it. And we had a couple meetings about it and put together an MOU about how we would work on it together, who puts in what money, who does what. Then we started looking for a location. So can you just describe just a little bit about, you said it's the first company that you've started that you never actually worked in the business. So what were your roles in getting this off the ground if you weren't going to be working on it day to day? Yeah. So, you know, being consultative in terms of strategy and making some early decisions about the stuff, mm -hmm. doing some things project-wise to help get things set up in terms of, you know, we needed a lease and all that kind of stuff. Being there for team meetings early on, 
But we decided to hire a general manager early. So we threw money at the problem. So five months before opening, we hired a general manager that comes from the food service world and that he would be the person really to bring this first location to fruition. So, you know, my partner and I would, and his name's Tom, would work together on getting the construction stuff done with the help of the general manager. And then based on that, we would have the GM in place to do what he's doing today, which is like training baristas. So I'm not out there training baristas and I have no interest in training baristas, but I'll drink the coffee. Yeah. Is that business only in San Antonio? Yep. So right now we're only in San Antonio. Goal is to keep growing, get really big. How many locations do you have? One. This is the first one. Yeah. Hopefully we'll start making money. So yeah, we're not wanting to go invest more money until it proves that it's working. So worst case, we're out the money to do one location. Best case, it does well. And we move on to the to doing location two and location three and you know building the snowball after that. And so by kiosk, that just means it's really only a drive-through or a walk-up. There's no place to sit inside and enjoy the coffee there. Exactly. Yeah. So this is not a, a sit-down, come-in place. They're kind of like, I'm trying to think of a good example that's here in Texas a lot, but they're 300 square foot little portable or modular buildings put on a slab, usually have double drive-throughs. Goal is to get people in and out in less than a minute. This is a business that, and it's called Toro Coffee. This is a business that targets down market from where Starbucks and those sort of guys live, right? So you get more value, you get more speed, you get less kind of pretentiousness. I don't know a better way to describe it. There's also more sugary drinks, more kind of generic level type cruise ship style drinks. Let me put it that way. Yep. And how many people staff a one 300 square foot kiosk? One or two people or more? Full staff will be 13 for each. And typically three or four will be working for each busy period. So, you know, this is a, a young person's job. We're pretty intentional about the way we want to compete as a business. So speed, quality of product, and then customer service and friendliness. So we're very intentional about the types of folks we're hiring. Not to go full culture index again, but these are high B, high D people. So they're really, really good people, people that, you know, we want them to be developing relationships with the people that are coming and generate repeat business from all that kind of stuff. And you just said that after one store kind of proves itself and is profitable, that's when you'll start pouring gas. Is it a business that if you get the results that you want, that you kind of go raise private equity around to scale quick? Or do you just keep kind of self-funding it one after the other? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, so this is a capital-hungry business, so it won't surprise me if we go raise money. It's funny, since I started talking about it on Twitter, people are like, can I invest in your thing? And I was like, you know, I had some other things that were just really good investments, but nobody wanted to invest in those. But it's it's funny that people, it's like investing in restaurants, everybody wants to do it. So anyway, I did have a lot of people reach out and it's it's been pretty fun. You know, we're not there to talk about it, but probably at some point, there'll be some sort of growth round that happens to accelerate the growth because this is a land grab situation, right? It's just, it's going to happen here in Texas. Who's going to own the market? Is it going to be us? Is it going to be Dutch Brothers? Is it going to be somebody else? And, you know, I think we have an opportunity to do that. So, Well, you said you also own the other business, Code Up. Is Code Up basically just a coding school? Yep. Yeah. So coding school, they do coding, data science, um, working on some other programs as well. So yeah, it's a just-in-time accelerated learning program. So basically train people for jobs. And then we're pretty unique because we give people back all of their money if they don't get a job. So it's you put up the money to pay for the program. If you don't get a job and do all that you're supposed to, we give you back all your money. 
And that really is a big differentiator for us versus more conventional education programs. Yep. So it's similar to kind of like a Lambda school. Yeah, Lambda for sure is there. Lambda's got a ton of buzz around it. We are fundamentally opposed to the ideas of ISAs, so we don't do them. We help people get loans and then we give them back their money if they don't get a job, which we think is much better. You know, our problem with ISAs is that they there's not appropriately aligned motivations, right? Like if you're a school and people are showing up on ISAs, you're motivated actually to churn people out who you don't think are very promising. And we just didn't want to build a company that is motivated to give up on students and therefore have a big churn rate. So with that, and then we do stuff in person, which is just much more efficient and higher quality than doing stuff online permanently. I, I think it's it's interesting that the, if you get a job, I think universities, I think are going to have to figure out a new model because they have no true skin in the game if, if somebody goes and pays them a quarter million bucks and they don't get a job. How do you define not getting a job? Is it like a period of time after they've graduated or, mm-hmm. you know, how do you make sure somebody's doing all the things they need to do and, you know, exhausted every effort to truly say they didn't get a job or is it kind of on the honor system? Early on, it was on the honor system. And that turns out when you have honor system, people will, some people will not be honorable. So we had to evolve it to basically be a set of very specific criteria of things that you have to do. So for example, if you go to a coding school and you stop coding the day after you leave, like it's very difficult for us to get you a job, right? Four months later, right? If you walk into the employee and you're like, yeah, I coded for four months and then I quit for four months, they're not going to, we can't help you. So, you know, we've had to set a time limit on it. So it's typically six months. We've had to set a list of things that you need to accomplish post-graduation to stay involved. For example, if you don't answer the phone when we call you and say, hey, we have this interview that we've set up for you, or you refuse to go, or if you get an offer and you don't take it, like all those things kind of disqualify you. Right. But it's just designed to take care of the people that are doing it the right way. And then the people that don't do it with the most kind of honorable approach, they don't deserve a refund. No offense to them. And that's all in the contract we sign with them. Like, I'm not, I don't want it to sound shady because it's actually all written down and it's exactly like, okay, you want your money back? Like, this is the way it works. And we do give people money back. Like, it happens. It's two or 3% on average. And we end up failing them by, you know, we see that as a failure of us that we don't get them a job. And so that it was either a failure of, we shouldn't have brought you in, you know, we didn't teach you the right way, you know, or we didn't, we didn't help you afterwards. And so we do, we do end up doing that. And that's just a cost of doing business the right way, we think. Like it's, we're totally fine with it. It's part of the model. Are there tons of different courses they take or is there like a typical amount of time spent? Is it like you go for a year and you take all these courses and you graduate or is there, they can kind of pick their curriculum? Yeah, so we're, backwards from the way typical educational institutions do. So it all starts with what are the what are the jobs that are available and how do we make you a viable ready candidate for those? So we start really with the web developer one and then also the data scientist or data analyst one and we work our way backwards from those to give you the skills to be ready to go take those to do those in demand jobs. So that happens in a very fixed but intense curriculum that happens a little over five and a half months of all day, every day, immersive learning accelerated around how do we give you the skills to go precisely to those jobs. So there's no Chinese menu, so to speak, of what you get to learn. Like this is all about how do we help you change your life, be the Yoda for you to do that by giving you the skills to get there. And how long is the program and what does it cost? Five, I don't want to quit you the wrong number, but it's five and a half months. We just lengthened it a bit under COVID. And last I checked is 25,000, 
dollars for the five and a half months. Awesome. With some scholarships, we have we just announced an African American specific scholarship, which we're pretty excited about. That's so, really cool. Yeah, we we try to help people get in and then get loans. And then what's been really cool is now that we're established and a trustworthy partner, both for the employers and local community. Like, there's a lot of grants that like the county and the local workforce commission like are giving to our students. So a lot of people are getting big chunks of it paid for, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. And if you're in the five and a half month program, is it a it's a full time job or are people doing it while also working? Yeah, our opinion is part time doesn't work. You know, like, frankly, a big part of why accelerated learning programs work is because employers see that you've made a commitment and you've done something really hard to get there. So that's a big selector there. But, you know, there are people that offer part time. I think those people are in the education business and full time is what you do if you're in the businesses which we're in, which is how do we help you change your life for the better? And part-time doesn't get you there. And I'm just not up to speed on some of this stuff, but when you know you read a lot about on Twitter and just anywhere now, this whole no-code movement, is there always going to be a need for code and there's a, wor- and a need for no-code or do we continue to gravitate towards this world where everything's been coded and now people are just building things with no-code? Or I don't even know if I'm asking the right question. Yeah, yeah. No, it's cool. We do have no code. You use it every day. Like Microsoft Excel. Like people use it all the time. Like it's been part of our life, but we don't even really think about it as a situation of, you know, what's going on in day-to-day business. And and I think it's totally the case that a lot of simplistic things are going to continue to to be put into code through the no code kind of tools. Like they're great, right? And so that's part of it. Even still, you know, our opinion is is that the hardcore stuff that happens in the enterprise, the hardcore stuff that is happening that requires more than just what you can do in a no-code tool, like we're decades away from that, like disappearing. So no no code's gonna be huge, but it's gonna be think I think about it more like how did Microsoft Excel transform your business? It's gonna feel more like that than, you know, oh, like is there an AI running your business? Like that's not gonna happen anytime soon. That's that's how I tend to think about it. Yep. Okay, can we talk a little bit about Dura software? Oh yeah. So what's awesome? <laughs> yeah, what's Dura to you? Yeah, so I'm board chairman there, co-founder. I spend time there a lot these days. Um, so it's the actual one of the businesses that I actually have a, a role inside of. So I wear two hats there. So I work in the business and then work on the business as chairman. So you know, Dura is a software company that's building a really big software company in a unique way. So kind of akin to what Constellation Software does, we're doing that for basically the type of software that they don't want to buy, which is they do vertical market software. We do horizontal market software with vertical market if it walks in the door, but we focus on different different niches of the universe of software that they do. And we've gotten really good at buying, optimizing, and holding forever small software companies. So we've done that five times now with the sixth and seventh one getting acquired sometime in the next couple months. That's awesome. And do y'all, is it a fund or do y'all just raise money on a deal by deal basis? We are an operating company. So we are a C Corp. So C Corps have huge tax advantages vis a vis other stuff. So they also fit our model compared to what a fund does. So funds buy and flip stuff typically. That's not our model. Like we actually are able to buy things at a pretty reasonable multiple because sellers know we're going to take care of their people 
in their business after they're gone, right? Because they know we're going to keep it forever. Whereas you sell it to a fund or you sell it to a big strategic, you don't know what's going to happen to your business. Like good chance it gets flipped or, you know, burn the candle at both ends, take all the cash out of it. All that kind of stuff can happen. But with our model, we wanted to be able to create the type of environment that would take care of the legacy of these sellers and, and it helps us buy stuff and get the right stuff in our in our company. And so you buy the business and then you you let that owner or you you replace the the owner with a new CEO and they just run it on their own, kind of like a Berkshire model. Yep. So you know we we think about ourselves um, so Berkshire is like a pure hold co, right? So they don't have anything centralized. They are entrepreneurial and then they push all the, the business decisions down to the edge, right? Where we live is the next notch over. So what has typically been called an accumulator. So because we're buying a very narrow kind of band of companies, when you look at what you're spending in those companies, there are two types of investments, right? You have non-strategic costs and strategic costs. So non-strategic costs are things that aren't going to help you be any better in the marketplace. Things like HR, facilities, vendor management, all that kind of stuff. So we centralize all of that mm-hmm. and, and we get economies of scale around that. And then what we do at the edge is we push all the stuff that is strategic costs. So sales, marketing, product development, like all of that lives underneath the CEO's purview and they get to make the right decisions there to meet their numbers each quarter, each year. That's so cool. One last question on that. It's probably the dumbest question of the podcast, but just describe to me the difference between the vertical roll-up that Constellation does versus the horizontal product that that y'all focus on. What's the difference? Yeah, great. So vertical market software is stuff like software for libraries, software for a specific individual industry, and software for healthcare. Those are all vertical market pieces of software. So... Constellation and like every other search fund out there, they've they've all decided vertical market software is great. What what we do is we do horizontal but niche software. So we'll buy things that are a TAM of $20 million, total addressable market of $20 million. And we'll try to find the number one or number two player in that and then run that business really well. And in horizontal use cases, it turns out that there are very unique kind of use cases that you don't have to worry about Facebook, Google, Microsoft coming in and trying to eat your lunch someday, right? So for example, the very first business that we bought was an MDM solution focused on very large deployments of uh, basically kiosks and digital signage, like 20, 25,000, 30,000 device deployments. Like that is not a niche that you have to worry about the other MDM players, mobile device management players coming in and and trying to kick you out, right? Because it's just a tiny market. Very few people need it, but the people that need it, they really need it. So just to kind of wrap up on all your different ventures, is there a, are you designing your third phase of your career to where you could keep adding more in, or are you going to reach a point where it's like, this is what I'm going to focus on and I can no longer do it? Are you trying to build it to where you could get involved in as many things as you wanted without sacrificing, you know, focus on everything you're already involved in? That second one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> working working on one thing like I, I've been CEO three times now like I don't want to do it anymore like somebody else can be in the hot seat you know I want the challenge now is how do I scale entrepreneurship right how do I do that on a parallel basis because you know I, I want to live in that creative space and that's that's a fun challenge all right a couple more let's just talk a bit about culture index you've You've mentioned it several times already. That's where we first really got to talking was on Culture Index. What is it to you and and how has it impacted your career? It's been huge. I mean, I think 
the leaving to enter into this phase, third phase of my career, like I realized going to Vistage, which is my CEO peer group and all this different stuff, like there were so many ways that people had figured out and good ways to solve problems to run businesses. And it was just stupid for me to either operate without a system or to go not adopt one of the ones that was really good. So Culture Index is one that because I'm a contrarian and I don't like people telling me what to do, I was initially resistant to. I was like, ah, that stuff doesn't work. It's hokey like Myers-Briggs. And the more I dug into it and the more I saw what it could do in terms of hiring and also interacting with people where they want to be interacted with, like it was super powerful. And what it is, Culture Index is a personality assessment tool. There's no right or wrong answers, but people shake out in it to really help you understand where they're coming from, what they're going to be good at, what their traits, natural traits are going to be, and then how you as a manager or a peer or an underling can meet them where they are. So I'm pretty nerdy about it at this point. Like I, you've heard me just like drop high B and high D and stuff like those are all culture index things. Like, but it's so powerful. Like, you know, I do one-on-ones with CEOs and it's like, it gives you, if they've gone through the training also and how, in terms of how to think about the graphs, it gives you so much power in just terms of to quantify how people are thinking about stuff. Like there's this one natural thing, for example, where high B people, they are very kind of inductive thinkers, right? They have a lot of influence on how they think based on what other people think. Well, that also has a downside, right? They're A, really good at people, but B, it turns out they're sometimes slow to make really hard decisions that are going to hurt other people's feelings. And then that toolkit, like if you and the people you're working with all think about things the same way, uh, it gives you like an amazing toolkit to go and like take teams that are maybe running on an 8 out of 10 and turbocharge them to run out of 10 on 10 just by making some little tweaks here and there all based on that that shared language. So if you take like Dura software, for example, and, and you talked about centralizing I would consider this a strategic cost, actually, but do, do you require the companies that you buy to adopt Culture Index or that's up to them? Yeah, everybody runs the same playbook. So all these kind of business systems I talked about, EOS for strategy and planning, top grading for hiring, NPS for customer satisfaction, Q12 for employee happiness. All this is on my website, gridley.com. You can download it if you want. They all, everybody uses it. And the the pitch to them is, Okay, you have to use a system. This is the system we're all going to use. We're happy to change it. If you want to use a different one, you just have to tell us why the system you want to use is better than the one we have. And we'll change it for everybody. Like, if you have something better than EOS, like, tell me why. We'll change it for everybody. And yeah, that, that gives us a standardized way of interacting with each of the companies. Like, we know what their, their one-page strategic plan is in terms of the VTO. Like, all that stuff comes standardized. So we have an interaction model that works. And on and just on that topic real quick with EOS, do you use an implementator for each company? Uh, do you hire a consultant or have you found success just doing it naturally inside the organization? I've never used an implementer. Okay. Yeah. Never. It's like a 50-50 split on that question. Some people swear by it and some people have never used it and been wildly successful with it. You know, I think there's a combination of like, A, I'm cheap. You know, and if you have a, a tiny $2 million a year company, you can't spend $50,000 on an implementer. Um, and then the two, like I've talked to some of the implementers and like they've grown their implementer community a lot. And there's some that are really good. They're really good ones. Like you can't hire them right now because they're over overburdened. And then I've sat in on some of the sessions with some of the new implementers and it's like, I know more about this than this person does. Yeah. And lastly, I think that when these kind of systems come from management, like that forces you to really create buy-in because so many of these folks 
adopt these systems, whether they're EOS or top grading or whatever, but the management's not really bought in. If the management has to roll it out, like they're either going to quit or they're going to roll it out. Like those are the few options for them. And so you get assured buy-in that way. And I just think that's better. Like if you want to outsource this, tell me what else you're working on that is so much more important than you running your business better. Like tell me what else you should be doing. Is it having more lunches? You could have more lunches, but no, no. Why don't you work on making your business better? I know. All those types of things. Like I don't have time to do that. It's like you do not have time to do that because you don't do this. That will give you your time back. If I could go back and find me 25 years ago, I would just hold me down and just say, you're going to do everything. Here's all these systems. You need to use these. Trust me. I love it. <laughs> stupid, stupid me probably wouldn't have listened, but anyway. Girdley Sr. holding down Girdley Jr. I've never had somebody from San Antonio. Obviously, I'm up in Fort Worth and, and we look at real estate in San Antonio all the time. I'm pretty familiar, but what's your two-minute kind of pitch for for what's going on in San Antonio and and why it's continued to be really successful over the last 20 years. Yeah, well I think San Antonio has been really smart about how it thinks about development and growth in terms of the community and it's it's super super funnier because like I've seen new people move here from other places and they'll come to me and they'll be like Gridley things are so weird here. I, I just went to a meeting and I was like, yeah. And he's like, what? And this is the exact story. He's like, yeah. Like it was like 50 people and everybody was just so passionate about making the city better. Like what's wrong with this place? Like he's like, where he came from in Utah, like wasn't that way. Nobody cared. They were just there to consume what had been built by the previous generation. So, you know, I think we've got the ingredients here to be a city that's going to continue to grow and evolve and be one of the winning cities amongst the three other ones in Texas, which are, are guaranteed winners, I think between Austin and Houston and here. So, you know, what's cool here on top of that is besides the culture is this is a place where if you want to be somebody who's a big fish in a little pond and you want to be able to work on stuff of a magnitude that can really matter for the community and you want to be somebody who is part of building the community and not just consuming it, like that is where it's awesome. Like that's, this is a great place to do that because, you know, anything smaller than this, like I think you run into a place that's not going to be on the upswing. But if you want to be a person that's a community builder, that's going to be, you can have a real impact. Like this is a great place to do it. I love it. How has the, the the growth of Austin impacted San Antonio? Often we hear often a big case for San Antonio is it's kind of synergy with Austin. Do you see that a lot? Well, Austin is awesome. I mean, if, if I wasn't born here and didn't live here, like there's a good chance I would have ended up in Austin. My sister lives there and it's great. So, you know, I, I could live in any of the four big cities in Texas. Like they're all great. Um, Houston feels like a version of San Antonio. They're all great. You know, Austin's, uh, San Antonio benefits when Austin's, Austin does. You know, I think we're we're all really happy for what's going on there. They've made some really great decisions, right? Fighting to have, you know, the kind of culture that they do, you know, fighting to be a place where you feel like there's an openness and a progressiveness of stuff like that, that attracts a lot of people. And so we're, we're starting to see people, you know, migrate back and forth, you know, like they always have. If, if you look internally in Texas, the numbers last time I checked were basically the, the net migration between the cities is pretty neutral. So, you know, I, we're seeing people move from here to there and there to here, like all that's perfectly healthy. And it's just a matter of time until this feels like Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin will probably be Dallas and we'll probably be Fort Worth, which is totally fine. Fort Worth is great. Yep. Now San Antonio is awesome. All right. Do you have a morning routine or something that you do in the morning? If COVID yep. gave me my first morning routine that I've had my whole life. So I've been curious what other people do in the morning. I am an early riser. So I get up in the morning. This morning I got up at five. 
I have coffee and I tweet stuff until about 5.30 and then I answer email <laughs> and then I go to the gym and I typically go to a CrossFit gym. So I go four or five times a week. So I'm the old guy at the CrossFit gym. And then me and my buddy who were accountability partners, he and I and our other friends, we go get a coffee afterwards. So we reward ourselves afterwards. And then, uh, then I go to work. I love it. What's the best advice you've ever received? Man, so much. I only wish I'd listened to it. You know, I think back to my favorite professor in college, and uh, he was the one the other professors hated, but I realized he was he was a genius. Uh, he's a computer science professor, and he would never answer any of our questions. Like we'd be like, "Hey, how do you do this? Like, how do I show the contents of a directory on a computer?" And he'd be like, "I don't know. Have you looked in the manual?" Like everything was, "I don't know. Have you looked in the manual?" But the advice that he was teaching us was that you know you first have to develop a, the ability to be self-reliant and go try to solve stuff without being dependent on somebody else. And that's the way to get ahead. And so he didn't exactly ever say it, but he beat it into us that that sort of life approach and that, that first principles idea there is core to being a successful human being. I love it. All right. Two more questions. If you had a billboard on a major highway, the busiest highway in San Antonio, and you could put anything on that billboard, what would you put on it? Uh, this is unoriginal, but it's raised prices. It is unoriginal. Oh, I thought you my I thought you meant my question. That that too is unoriginal. No, no, the question's great. Like I've I've you know I'm preparing for this. I was like, well, do I come up with something original? Or I just tell you what it really is. But it really is raised prices, and that's a very deep you know it's a Mark Mark Andreessen quote, but it's exactly right. Like I think back to when we started Code Up, and we started Code Up, and it was really cheap. Like it was really really cheap. We were giving people three months of intense learning, you know, one instructor per every six students. Like it was a great, we gave them a great deal and it was six grand for three months and it just wasn't working. It totally wasn't working. And the reason it wasn't working was we were creating like an intellectual like disconnect with people. They didn't understand how something could be a Cadillac, you know, or a Range Rover and it would be priced like, you know, a beat up 20 year old motorcycle. And, uh, the business actually took off when we raised prices. We raised prices, we doubled them. I said, I said, we're, we just can't do this anymore, guys. We just, we got to charge people what this is worth. It's got to be a fair price. And we doubled the prices and demand went up. And the reason, the reason was, is because suddenly our story made sense. It's like, oh, this is, we're giving you a Cadillac here, guys. Like, and people wanted to pay for it. And, and so I think that translates into so many things that, you know, just like you're you're managing your funds or you know your real estate portfolio or any of the business I'm involved in, like you got to charge your fair worth, and that will help you be the best you can, right? And you just too many people charge too little because they just think about it all the wrong way, and and make such a huge difference. Oh man, I love that, uh, especially in real estate. The the common thing is that new new sponsors or new GPs try and charge no fees and, you know, very little promote and they wake up five years later and they can barely cover their operating business and their promotes are helping cover their operating business. And I'm like, you got to charge what you're worth to be successful. And you see it over and over. I've made the same mistake and I even made it as an adult, like in my late thirties, like we raised our first fund. We didn't charge a management fee yeah. for Geetham Fund. For yeah. <laughs> I want to go back and punch me in the face. Like, this is stupid. <laughs> like, what were you thinking? Like, and I thought it would, you know, we thought it would make be easier to raise the fund. It was great, but it turned out like that's not sustainable, right? Charity is not sustainable. You got to, you got to charge people for what you're worth and that'll help you deliver a premium service and, and do things the right way. 
And uh, goes back to that ISA thing we were talking about. Like you, if you worry about how your value alignment happens, where everybody's incentivized for the same thing to happen, like magic. That's where magic happens for sure. All right, how can people find you or reach you? Uh, yeah, so personal website gridley.com. Twitter is at gridley. So I've been tweeting a lot. So uh, this my new. One of my new 14 new hobbies during COVID. <laughs> I have nothing to sell. <laughs> so, so that's the one thing I feel weird about being a prolific Twitterer is like, oh man, everybody's selling courses or raising funds or whatever. And it's like, well, I'm doing nothing. So I'm just here to talk. But yeah, I'd love to interact with people and continue the serendipity that I found by being out on social media and doing that kind of stuff. So yeah, at Girdley on Twitter or Girdley.com. Michael, thank you so much for uh, taking some time this morning to sit down with me. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah, great job, man. Thank you. All right, we'll see you. Hey, everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.